I don't know a woman who doesn't know this. Women want to read about everything. We want to read about serious stuff and we want to read about silly stuff. We want to think we want to see the joy in our lives reflected and the struggles. And we want to see all kinds of different shades of gray in that. Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor, and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hello everyone and welcome to Rights for Women. My name is Cassie Hamer and I'm a women's contemporary fiction author of three novels, including The Truth About Faking It, which is in stores now. But today I'm delighted to be joined by Holly Rainwright, head of content for women's media company Mamma Mia, and the author of four novels, the latest of which is The Couple Upstairs, which I'm just going to hold up now. Such an incredible book, a page-turning story of infatuation, obsession, coercive control, and the blurred lines that allows all of these elements to coexist in one relationship. Holly, welcome to the podcast and congrats on a really fine novel. Tell me, what's the response been like? It's been really good, which is obviously great. And in terms of people seem to be embracing it, I've had a lot of feedback about women really enjoying it. It's been interesting because of my four novels, it's definitely the most tackling the most serious subject matter. My last book, I Give My Marriage a Year, was about relationships and I love writing about relationships, but it was about two people and their decision whether or not to stay married. And this book, as you've mentioned, does deal with darker themes. And it's been interesting in the response to it, women saying how they felt about that. And some women saying, thank you for writing about this. I, I really saw my own experience in it. Others saying, oh, it was more serious than I thought, which has opened lots of interesting conversations about what people are expecting from women's fiction. But in general, it's been really positive, which which is great. We'll get to the nitty gritty of the story a bit after, but we're talking about this concept of darker themes and women's contemporary fiction. So we'll tackle that bit at the moment because you wrote an incredible article for Mamma Mia this week in which you outlined some of your thoughts on this. And I'm going to read back to you some of what you wrote about the genre known as commercial women's fiction. And what you said is that it's often packaged and treated as light fodder when it's anything but. Books by giants of the genre, Leanne Moriarty, Marion Keyes, Jodie Picot, routinely deal with topics far from fluff. Topics like addiction, family violence and terminal illness, all sitting inside colourful graphic covers that more literary readers might dismiss as a beach read or an airport novel. What they don't know is what women want to read on beaches and on planes and anywhere at all, really, are stories that reflect their lives back at them. And even the most mundane female life is often quietly seething with these dark themes. 
You've summed that up so beautifully there. And I think what a lot of us as women's fiction authors feel that these aren't stories just about women. They're not just fluff. They are really tackling the stuff of life. So what do you think of the tag women's fiction? Because this is a fairly hot debate, particularly among authors. Doesn't do us a disservice or is it something that we need to own proudly? I wrestle with it. Kathy, I do, because I kind of, thinking that it does a disservice suggests that we think that anything that is mostly aimed at women cannot be as good mm. as stuff that is aimed at men or aimed at a gender-neutral audience. And so I don't want to say that I feel belittled by that because I'm very proud to write books and to work for a media company and to produce content that women want to engage with. That's what I want to do. If I have a mission statement, which I don't because I'm not that kind of person, but if I did, it would be that I want to tell women's stories and I want women to feel more seen and less alone in all kinds of different ways. So I don't want to think that the tag women is a pejorative one. Mm. However, there is no question that in the publishing world, and I don't want to sound like a whinger either because that's also not the kind of person I am, but in the publishing world, there's no question that it is a little bit pejorative to say, this is a woman's book. And commercial is another one that's a little bit, can be a little bit of a negative term. So I think that really where I'm landing on this is that I don't mind at all the fact that people say, oh, she writes books for women. Mm. But what I would like to think is that we don't therefore think that there's some kind of silly fluffiness because we all know, and I don't know a woman who doesn't know this, women want to read about everything. We want to read about serious stuff and we want to read about silly stuff. We want to think we want to see the joy in our lives reflected and the struggles and we want to see all kinds of different shades of grey in that. So I think that it's, I don't know, I think that I'm trying to sit comfortably in that tag. How do you feel about it? It's quite a tricky space because part of me thinks that we can own the fact that we are writing about women's lives for women. So long, it's been dominated by male authors writing for men. But then again, there is an assumption, I think, that goes along with what is the domain of women's fiction. But I think that is changing. And I think women like Leanne Moriarty and the ones that you mentioned are changing that view and they're changing it because they're being so successful. The publishers are saying that there is a real appetite for this kind of fiction and these stories. And in a way, it's like delivering the punch in a velvet glove. Like when we caught up a couple of weeks ago, I was saying how much I loved the cover of your book. And for those who haven't seen it, it's got pink and sort of not purple, but it's a lovely shade of blue and orange. Like it's quite colourful and it's got stripes. And you mentioned at the time that you were slightly concerned that the readers' expectations and what they are getting in this book might be different to what they actually receive from it. And I'm guessing that's at the heart of the reaction that you've been getting to this book, that it's not necessarily quite what people were expecting because it's a little different and darker to what you've written before. And you've said that this was your most ambitious book to date. And I'm just wondering what you meant by that. So I think 
to touch on the cover for a second, it's interesting because I think I don't think I'm speaking out of turn to say this, that we actually had a little rest. We had a bit of a wrestle about the cover with, with my publisher, Pam McMillan, that ended, I think, in a very good place. But the first version of it looked quite similar to that, but the color way, the colored tones were much more pastel-y and more like ice creamy colors. And both myself and my agent, Catherine Drayton, felt that was like, that was a step beyond in terms of misleading because the book is not a heavy book. And I think that's another thing is we don't want to, particularly at the moment when I think that women are overwhelmed, not only women, to be fair, but most of us are still overwhelmed with what we've all been through collectively over the past few years on top of the usual overwhelm that women tend to be dealing with. You don't necessarily want to take on something that feels like this is going to be homework. This is going to be dredging up all my worst, um, in my worst moment. So it's a difficult line to walk to say, this is an accessible page turner, mm. but I don't want you to walk into it thinking that it is sunshine and lollipops when it is dealing with things that are quite serious in part. So there was a discussion there about how to find a middle ground there. And because my last book, I Give My Marriage a Year, had an amazing graphic cover that obviously, for, for very sensible reasons, it was smart to reference so that reader knows what they're going to get, knows that it's the same author in that immediate recognition moment. It was interesting, that sort of decision about how you arrive at a place where it feels accessible and like I want to buy that, but hits at the darkness. So that was that. That was the story about that. And I think it's interesting to, to consider how you convey those messages in covers that also people want to grab off the shelf. Anyway, in terms of ambition, two things. One was that it's basically a mystery. Not, an, not entirely. It's not a whodunit kind of mystery, but it's what we would call a much plottier book than my last book. It has twists and turns, it's important when certain things are revealed, you don't necessarily know what's going to happen, all of those things. I wanted to try that because although obviously I give my marriage a year was a plotty book in that the suspense in it was to find out whether or not the couple were going to stay together or not, and hopefully the reader was invested enough to care, it wasn't a plotty book in that. To be really honest, not a lot happened. Like it's more of an exploration of a relationship and i Love that book and I'm very proud of it. But I wanted to try something different. I wanted to see if I could write something a bit more plotty and a bit more, a bit darker. So it was ambitious in that way that I felt like I was swimming in a space that I hadn't swam in before. And that's what I want to do. I think every writer I know doesn't necessarily want to reinvent themselves with every book. And certainly that's not what our publishers want us to do. But you want to test yourself, right? You want to grow. I I only want to get better. If I get to live my dream, I will be writing books until I can't tap a keyboard anymore. And I want every one of them to challenge me and to be better than the last one. So I'm not saying necessarily achieve that or will achieve that, but that's what I would love. So I had ambitions to try something different. And I also had an ambition to deal with this thorny, uh, gray area of, of abuse that is not necessarily that is not easily understood or recognized and coercive control is obviously the term that we've come to know 
that describes this now, but it's an umbrella for a lot of different things. So as I write in that piece, I said, I said when I was first talking about the book and promoting the book, I was saying it's about obsessive love and it is, and it's about infatuation and it is, and it's about how lust can cloud judgment and it is, and it's about all these things. But it is also about that, that feeling of being in a relationship that is so intense that it then dominates your life and then how you get out of that and who's at fault for it and what the suitable punishment should be. And so all of those things were difficult for me to do. And I guess when I say it's, it was ambitious, it felt like a big mission. And some days, like all writers, some days I think, oh, I pulled that off. And then other days I'm like, oh, I really did it. <laughs> I think I can see the two ambitions there, the writerly ambition and the thematic ambition. And the thing I kept thinking when I was reading your book is just how incredibly nuanced your depiction of those very complicated relationships was. And it made me think a lot about the saying that two things can be true, that, that yes, you can love someone and be obsessed by them and you can have huge moments of joy in that relationship, but you can also have terrible moments of misery and anger and yet you can still consider it to be um, a loving relationship. I'm just wondering, can you tell us a little bit, we've spoken around what the book is about, but can you tell us more about the plottiness of it and who our main characters are and what situation we find them in at the start of the book? Yeah. I'm delighted to hear you say that you thought that topic was explored with nuance because obviously that's what I wanted and I I think we live in a world where we, and it's ironic that with all of the voices we can listen to now with such ease, we're still so much more comfortable in being able to be black and white about goodies, baddies, that's wrong, that's right. And I, I think we all know that relationships are much more complicated than that. But yes, to the plot. So it's called The Couple Upstairs because it's set in an apartment block in Sydney by the beach, which is pretty much the apartment block that I lived in for a long time much longer than I should have done, like Mel, the protagonist, because it's this old Art Deco block by the beach. And Mel's living there with her two small children. She's recently split up from her husband. And upstairs, moves, this young man moves in, first of all, who reminds her intensely of her ex, not her ex-husband, but a love from her past who was really pivotal in her life, was the reason she is where she is in her life and why she made the choice to marry the man she did and many other things. But she becomes obsessed with him because he reminds him so intensely of this past love. And then his girlfriend moves in and the obsession grows. And they form a relationship, these two women who are generations apart, Mel, who's a woman who lives downstairs around 40 and Laurie is around 20. And they form a relationship where Laurie becomes the babysitter which gives Mel a proximity to the relationship and what's happening upstairs that sort of feeds this obsession. And then one day, Laurie disappears. And that's where the plot starts in a way. And then we go back and find out what led up to that and then what happens after that. So that's what I mean when I say that it was the timeline of, of revealed that it was com- much more complex and not the most organized and confident plotter, Cassie, I have to tell you. <laughs> so it was a real challenge for me, that stuff. But yes, that is broadly what happened. Mm. So are you a plotter or a pantser? I'm a pantser all the way. And I have had to get much better at that. And with this book, I did. I am one of those writers who 
obviously, to get a book written, you have to be organized, you have to be committed, you have to be all of those things. So I'm not pretending that I'm just like some flaky, flippity gibbet who doesn't know what I'm doing. But what I do find is that I, my, my plots often unfold to me as I'm writing yeah. rather than necessarily being a person who can immediately plot out exactly what's going to happen in every chapter. Or when I do do that, it invariably shifts and changes along the way. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably because my, in my professional life, I have been an, a writer and an editor for so many years that everything's a work in progress until it's not. Do you know what I mean? It's like I, every piece that you write for the internet or a magazine or otherwise isn't finished until that very last moment and I can change it right up. I don't know. I find it very hard to set things in stone, including what. But with this book, I needed to do that in a much more organized way than I ever have before. I had to become more of a plotter, but it's not my natural instinct. I am much more of an answer. And often I, I have to, I'm very much a writer who is deadline driven, which again, I think is my years in journalism. If I don't have a deadline, I won't do it. And I invariably find myself in a mad scramble to the end. <laughs> As we all do. You're not alone. But tell me, what does your plotting then look like? If you say that, that usually you're a discovery writer, let's call it that, but in this case you had to sit down and do more plotting, did it look like an Excel spreadsheet or did it look like you just jotting down some dot points or did you have a particular, there's lots of, plotting systems out there, let's call them, save the cat, et cetera, et cetera. Did you use that or can you describe a little bit more what plotting um, like? I didn't, although I am, because as I say, plotting is something I definitely want to get better at. So I'm now exploring a lot more of that for my next book. But the way I used to plot in my old house, in the little flat that was like the one that Mel lives in, is on a big wall in the bedroom. My poor partner, honestly, he puts up with a lot. Part of it was literally post-it notes, literal post-it notes all over the wall, like end up being a hundred of them that were all the chapters, all the sections, the character points, and I'd just move them around. And there's something about that that is very pleasing to the way my mind works. And I, in, we've just moved house again. And my, this is my dream is to get into the room of my own where I can go back to my post-it note wall. But at the moment it's banned. So I have a virtual version of that on Scrivener. So I write on Scrivener, obviously the way that you can set up all your chapters and notes on there. Obviously there is a way that you can work on Scrivener where it literally looks like you're plotting on post-it notes. Yeah. And that's what I do. The cork board. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah. Yes, the cork board. So I discovered that and used that a lot more with this book where I literally would plot there. Endlessly move things around, lots of notes. I find it hard to, the way my mind works, to see things in a big picture unless I can literally see it in a big picture. So in terms of plotting out the important points of the reveals in this book, for one, I kept changing my mind about whether or not I wanted, obviously we're not going to give any spoilers in this interview, but I kept changing my mind about the point in the book where I wanted you to understand what had happened to Laurie which was inconvenient because that was pivotal and a lot of the book (laughs) turns on that. I kept moving that around. But yes, I literally just plot out chapter by chapter, section by section, uh, because the book is a part, which I find 
easier to organize my thoughts in that way too. And then I just start. Yeah, start, you know, no writers who start at the end, but I start at the beginning. I thought the structure was so interesting and I do want to delve a little more into that because what happens is that the story in real time unfolds over four months from October to January. But part one is sort of October to November and then part two jumps forward to January where something quite monumental has happened and then the end of the book fills in that November-December period. And the effect of that is that it does give you this really propulsive quality to the story that just makes you want to keep turning that page. Was that always the way that you were going to do it? Or did you write it chronologically and then start playing with the structure? That was always the way I wanted to do it. And my main concern is that it would be confusing because I, although I love a twisty, plotty book as much as the next person, I recently read one that had been recommended to me that was brilliant, but I literally didn't understand what was happening. Where's the plotty twisty that gets so complicated that I have to keep flicking back in the book? I'm probably out. There's a problem. <laughs> yeah. I know people who love that, but for me, I'm like, if I get to that point, I'm like, I'm out. So I didn't want it to get too complicated, but I knew that I wanted you to understand what had happened. Like, the issue that had happened and then go back and see it unfold. And I wanted you to understand that what you thought in the same way that relationships are never quite what you think they are from the outside. I wanted the reader to get that sense of when they read the very first, the prologue, which is about Mel's physical sort of yearning and obsession for this couple upstairs in a way. I wanted you to be a little bit not misled because that sounds disingenuous, but to understand that what you might be thinking Mallard's feeling there is not really what she's feeling by the time you get to the point of the book. And I wanted to explore, it's also set in the pandemic, which is another controversial point about it because a lot of people said don't do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I also, so I wanted the timing of it was important. But then I also felt very strongly that I didn't want it to be too bogged down in that timing, as in, at that moment, was Sydney in lockdown? Was it not? Were we on restrictions? Were we not? I wanted it to be a kind of sinister hum that adds to the claustrophobia that we were all living through in that time and sort of part of why it became that everybody was pushed together in this very literal way during that period. So Mm. I knew I wanted to mess with the timing like that, Mm. but I wrote it in the order that you read it in. Oh, that is so interesting. I don't know how you held all those bits in your head, but now that you've explained the post-it notes, it's clear that you couldn't (laughs) hold it all in your head and that you had to see it on paper. Did you get any pushback from your editors about the decisions you made, particularly in relation to having a prologue, which some kind, sometimes can be a bit divisive with editors and also including the pandemic, which is a hot button topic with publishers. My publisher was supportive of me setting it in the pandemic, but then in the editing process, there was quite a lot of back and forth about how specific to be. And as I say, I did not want to be too specific. I never actually used the word COVID. It's mm. The virus is mentioned It's in the background. As I say, I wanted it to be an, almost an atmosphere rather than a reality. I just felt, and maybe this is lazy, Kathy, but I just felt 
because I wrote this book over the past two years. Mm. And I know a lot of writers have struggled a lot to write in pandemic times, and I was definitely one of them too. It was but not an easy book to write for many reasons. I just couldn't not. I just couldn't not. I just, and I know it's strange because now I'm not going to say we're out the other side of it that we're not, but um, now I, when I, whatever I'm watching, it, it, there's always a question in my mind, is this the time before or is this the time after or is this in a time that we're pretending never happened or, I don't know, I, it's just, it, I just felt like I could not. And also from the time that I had the idea and book, which was pre-pandemic, I, once the pandemic happened, as I say, it made me realize that it would be useful because you're so much closer to the people you live with and around when you're literally there all day and when you literally can't go anywhere. And so it was useful to the plot. Yeah, it can be a useful plot device as well as being that sort of oppressive presence. But I've, I think I read somewhere that you felt like this book had been written in snatches of time and in, in cracks of time. What did you mean by that? And how did you actually get the thing written then? Because that's a very hard way to write because a book does require a substantial amount of immersion at some point in the process. I know it definitely does. And I think that's one of the reasons, another reason why I was actually very nervous about this book. Uh, there were the themes and the ambitions of the different style that we've talked about, but also the writing process was far from ideal. <laughs> As it was for all of us during this time. Because during the time that I wrote it, it was pandemic times. There was homeschooling. There was very intense. I have a day job, obviously, which is quite significant, but also periods during the past two years that have been more demanding or more intense because certainly in the early stages of the pandemic, everybody was just panicking about what that might look like. So we were all in. <clears throat> so there were periods when the book got very neglected. We also moved during this time. So we moved from the city to a regional area and all that that entailed. That was better though, for, because we had more space and more time. And I think I'll look back. I mean, some people want to punch me for saying this, but I think I'll look back at some period of last year with a little bit of fondness because <laughs> we, we moved to the South Coast just as Sydney went into its long lockdown. And that immediately cut us off from. Everybody we knew <laughs> and, and the children were at home, but they were a bit older than they were the first lockdown. And we also had more physical space and I had, so I did have more time to focus on the book. But when I say, I think I wrote it in five minutes, but I also think that is just that our attention was so shattered during that time mm. because I think even with. And I know a couple of writers, I spoke to a writer recently for whom she said it was the most creative period ever. She doesn't have children <laughs> and she wasn't homeschooling and she wasn't doing all that thing. But for most writers that I know and most people I know, the stress and anxiety that came with it, as well as the practical challenges, just shattered our ability to concentrate. And I did feel at times like I wrote this book in little bits. I had a deadline looming. I knew what I wanted to do, but I wasn't sure how to do it. So I've always written in blocks of the day, either early in the morning or at nights or for a few solid hours on the weekends or obviously carving out little portions of time. It's how I've always written and, and literally set a timer to say, I'm going to, and to, I have a laptop. I have two laptops. I have this one. 
that it's all like 20 million different platforms. I have my work Slack messaging pinging off. I've got all my diaries. I've got all my social media. I've got everything on it. And then I have my treasured writing laptop that has nothing except Scrivener. And wow. because I can't be trusted to not be eternally distracted by all my other bells and whistles. Well, don't we all know as writers that you're like, all I want to do is write. All I want to do is sit down with my book. All I want to do is do this. And then you sit down and you're like, <laughs> maybe I should buy that, that piece that I've been meaning to buy. I should look at those lipsticks. I should buy those. The kids need that blah. Oh, what about that place you want to go? You'll immediately just buy yourself all these I literally have this app called Forest on my phone that you, um, you set the time that has to be uninterrupted. And I would write it in those blocks. And that was the way I had to do it. And I often felt that wasn't necessarily the best time, but mm. it was what it was. And often my son, who's small, who's, uh, he was eight, nine about this time, he started like writing too. So he'd go, Mom, we're going to write today. And he'd sit on the, on the Mac and he would like go into hyper focus and write a 14 chapters about Minecraft and I would be like, oh, I don't think I've got a hundred words down. Like, oh, geez. Is he a hard tapper too? That can be so annoying. He is, but I would be like, oh gosh, I better, he's really showing me off. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I need to work harder. I don't know if it's helpful or not, but so, so you're not conscious of producing a certain number of words. You mentioned that you have a deadline. So I'm imagining that you are conscious of word counts, but when you block out that time, you're not thinking to yourself, well, must do 500, must do a thousand words. I am at the beginning. I'm very word count focused at the beginning. This book went way over what I expected it to be or wanted it to be. So at the beginning, it feels like it was under your belt, right? Words under your belt. I've got that progress is happening. And then if it comes much less about that, more about the crafting of the words you have, I think every writer knows that. Not, but I tend, so I've tried Sally Hepworth, I think she was fast 250, she knows. Oh, fast 350, 350, that's all I know. Yeah, yeah. Where she goes, she sits down, right 350 and then she sits down. Right. I, I do find it helpful and realistic to do smaller blocks. I used to, when I wrote The Mummy Bloggers, which was my first novel, I carved out some time off work to write that book. And I was right. I, it was like, this is all nine to five, basically, as a, a work day almost or a school day at least. I'm just writing, but it's not realistic. I think what I've learned about writing is it's not realistic necessarily. Sometimes you're on an amazing tear and you can, I need to do a realistic hour get up, do something else, the real and thick hour do good. So it's less about word count, more about time. And then I, as I say, I inevitably end up in a mad rush to the end at which I begin to freak out and decide that everything about me and my process and my writing is entirely wrong. <laughs> but that is your process. The freak out is part of the process. That's what I'm recognizing, although I'm hoping. I don't think it's hoping. I need to make sure that the next book less crazy effect. Pick up from that question because I wanted to then ask, given the intermittent nature of writing the book, can you remember how long it took from first words to final words? Was it a year, less than a year? It was, really it was two years, but it was some of that time no writing was getting done. 
So I remember that I wrote the prologue, which was at that point going to be chapter one, but then I decided to do the timing shift and everything on holiday in 2020. So in January, I wrote that. I remember being very pleased with myself because I thought it was you <laughs> do. But, but I don't know about you, Cassie, but a lot of my writing process is a lot of self-loathing. <laughs> All of it is self-loathing until you then reread it and think, this is not as shit as what I felt like coming really? in. <laughs> not terrible. This isn't terrible. Yeah, it's readable. <laughs> but I remember being pleased with the prologue. And in, we were on holiday in Dagger Island and the Hawkesbury River, which is the place that I love. Anyway, then the world went to shit because that was January 2020. Mm. And then everything went wrong after that in terms of the pandemic. And then I didn't file it till this past, the end of this past January. Mm. And so there was a large portion of 2020 where I wasn't really working on it, even though I should have been because everything else just took completely over talk. So it was literally two years, but... It was, it was supposed to be two years, but it was literally, I, I don't know if I could add up all the blocks of time. Mm. And then I, what I'd done, which is what I always do, is just before, leading in the time leading up to deadline, I was take leave from my day job so that I could just solely focus on the book. And then I, which I did this time, so I took all of January off and then I got COVID. And then <gasps> I got COVID quite badly Mm. No, well, actually, at the time, the actual COVID bit wasn't that bad, but it knocked me around for much longer than I expected. So that kind of wiped out quite a lot of January. And I remember just the stress of having this looming deadline and trying to write while I was unwell. So then obviously I had to push the deadline. Mm. I was not a complete hero. And what I also did, and I have done before too, just before deadline, is I'll go away on my own. So I got a just for a weekend, I booked an Airbnb down the coast, literally leading up to deadline day. Just me in a room with a kettle and some snacks, and that's it. That's like an enforced isolation period to to get to the end. And yeah, like a nice prison at the end of yeah, exactly. it, just to finish you it off. How does writing fit with your day job? Obviously, you deal in words every day. You have a really busy job you're producing content quite a lot where does fiction sit within that because I know that some people feel that they only have a certain number of words in them per day and if you expend all your words in your job sometimes it doesn't leave room for fiction do you find any tension between the two roles that you have really interesting because I don't actually I not to say that I've just got endless words. I don't think I do, but I don't. So obviously part of my job is writing, but a lot more of my job these days is talking because mm-hmm. I'm host of two different podcasts. We produce a lot of content now from On Mirror Out Loud, which is the main show that I'm on. We do pretty much five episodes a week. And I love that. Love, love it. And I love writing too. But I am... Um, I mean, writing for my, in my day job, writing too, I do, but it's a much, it's a very different process. Fiction is so freeing in comparison to writing on the internet where you are obviously hampered, not hampered, obviously you have constraints, which are very useful, but also you are constantly second guessing and, um, 
considering how it's going to be received in real time. So it's a very restrictive kind of writing, actually, which is good. It's good for you as a discipline. But fiction is my absolute favorite thing to do. So I, as I say, I have that typical writer thing of like, all I want to do is be thinking about that and writing that. And then often you'll get to that and you're like, oh. I think it's interesting. I talk about this with Jessie a lot, who is my co-host on Mom Mirror Out Loud and who is also a writer and she is writing a novel at the minute after her very successful non-fiction book, Heartsick. But we talk about whether or not the constant information input of working in media mm. is helpful or not helpful. And I think in some ways, I wouldn't be able to write the books that I've written if I didn't have that job because literally I listen all day to women's stories in some form or another and what women are interested in and what they're talking about and the things in their lives that are causing them stress or joy or I literally have a sort of hotline to that all the time which is incredibly useful for a writer. But what I do find is that the discipline of being engaged with the news cycle mm. and constantly inputting information is not helpful when you are trying to build an imaginary world and what you need is the base piece, which is why, as I say, it's, a, it's like a friction in my... I remember when I was first writing fiction, I would find it so hard to go... I was living near the beach in Sydney in those days and I'd go for a walk with one of the kids in a pram or with a dog or whatever... And I'm just so trained to always have a podcast on or mm. constantly be looking at my phone like input. But that's the time that I have ideas, like all of us. You'll be going somewhere, doing something, and you're not distracted and you suddenly a, a thorny plot that you've been issuing, your plot that you've been trying to unknot will come to you and you'll be like, oh, my God, that's it. And if you never give yourself space to have that quiet, it never happens. Mm. So mm. it... it so I think it's difficult because I think that it's a strength to be so engaged with women's conversations is an advantage, but the frenetic pace of digital media is not really conducive to creative ideation a lot of mm. the time. And also depends a bit on, on the type of media that you're consuming. And I know that you would consume it pretty widely, but on the one hand, you've got this job, which is giving you a lot of fuel for inspiration. But I heard someone say, and I don't know if it was you, but someone said that when you're writing fiction, you have to turn off the Twitter voice. Have yeah. you heard that? Yeah. Or was it you I, that I said know, that? It might have been me, but I don't think I was the one who came up with it. I remember messaging Jesse that because... <laughs> Because we've been talking about this and because I knew I was going to be writing about something a little that is controversial in coercive control. If you basically writing about anything about women and abuse, it's controversial. Mm. Writing anything about feminism is controversial, right? Everything's controversial these days. But one of the things, because one of the themes I really wanted to explore in this book is this generational gap between Mel and Laurie. Are things better? or not that's one of the that's also a theme I wanted in there and that is something I'm very interested in because I am 50 and I work with a lot of women who are in their early 20s I'm very engaged and up close with them and how they feel and think and I there are times when even though I know that objectively things are so much better 
and we have all these words and all this language for now different forms of abuse in other ways it doesn't feel like it is it feels like when I and this was a big part of my inspiration for this book actually is last year when um Chanel Contos published that petition she's a young woman a, a consent campaigner who published a petition online where she'd asked her fellow students and she went to a blue chip school in the Sydney's eastern suburbs which isn't my world but she asked her fellow students what experiences they'd had with boys in the schools all around them and there was this outpouring of just awfulness I'm sure everybody is familiar with this and she's become a really impressive vocal campaigner about consent and changing the way we teach consent in school I was so genuinely probably naively horrified by reading those accounts because I don't know that necessarily was my experience when I was at school when I was young and that's after a generation of feminist parents I don't know I just find it I find all that fascinating so it's one of the things I wanted to talk about anyway the Twitter voice <laughs> so when you're writing about this space people are going to have opinions about it and some people are going to be like oh you're minimizing or you're maximizing or you're demonizing men or you're dismissing victims there is no way to write about these kind of issues without people having opinions about it and that's fine um but if you're constantly writing thinking what people on Twitter are going to say about what you're writing, you paralyze yourself, or at least I do. I know some writers who are fueled by criticism or debate in that way, and they love it. But for me, I find it paralyzing. I will be like, they're going to say this, they're going to say that. So you do literally have to turn off the Twitter voice, A, literally by not looking, <laughs> and B, by following your for want of a much less cliched term, your North Star of what you're trying to say and what you know you want to say and the story you want to tell without thinking of what the lens that everyone else is going to put on it. Mm. Just picking sense? up on, yeah, picking up on what you said there about are things any better today versus when you were a younger person and the outpouring, the reckoning that's happening at the moment in relation to coercive control. And I think one of the things is that at least now we have a name for these things and that when you and I were younger, we couldn't have necessarily named them and they wouldn't have been labelled in a way that clearly we understand now is unhealthy and unacceptable. But I wonder if the writing of this book and the turning off the Twitter voice is also complicated, but not complicated, but exists in at the same time as the fact that you're writing a lot from what you experience and I understand with this book and this is something that you wrote about in the Mamma Mia piece was how you were some of your direct experience is translated into this book and I'm just wondering if you can tell me a bit more about that and how do you use personal experience in fiction in the way that is comfortable for you and protects you and the people around you but is also it's that magic ingredient that makes fiction really sing when you're writing from personal experience there's a certain authenticity to it that is hard to replicate through purely imagination alone but it does come at personal cost so 
what are your thoughts around that? Do you have a particular philosophy about writing from personal experience? Are there certain guidelines that you work to, certain boundaries that you set for yourself? Definitely. This is also an issue in the other kind of writing that I do, which is Mm -hmm. the non-fiction stuff, is people, other people, people externally will have views on how much they think you're sharing and whether you're sharing too much or not enough. Everybody I know who writes any kind of memoir or personal essays or anything that touches on their own experience has their own quite strict guidelines for that. So obviously I'm always questioning myself about what I do and don't want to share. In this particular instance, there are lots of experiences that I've had that are not in this book, as I'm sure there are, you know, there there are many. But there are a couple of specific moments from relationships that I've had that that made their way into this book because they were just very great specific examples of how that feels. Mm. But it's not a memoir. It's not an account of specific relationships I've had. There are just some events that have made their way in there. And there's one that I talk about in the article I wrote about Mamma Mia, which is a relatively small one of when Mel's partner tells her that she's clapping too loudly at the concert. And that did happen to me. But what everything else around that is not what happened to me. So I think I think that every so I think it's frustrating for authors sometimes that people are always sifting through their work and going, is that bit true? Is that bit true with that person? Because we all write from a mixture of personal experience, research, imagination. Fiction is a mess of all of those things, yes? Mm. So I think that sometimes it's helpful, particularly when you're trying to explain your work or talk about your work, to acknowledge that some of it is true and comes from a specific place. But I don't want to ever get in that situation where it's, yes, and this was that guy. And this like it's, mm. it's about the, the, the finding some specific some very specific detail in something that then you can actually be quite broad about. Does that make sense? Yes, it does make sense because it is, it's your story. Well, this isn't your story directly, but you have experiences and you have a right to use those experiences, I think, in your creative work. But at the same time, they're not just your experiences because they happen to you and to other people around you. And one day your children might read this book. So there's it's a very difficult thing, I think, to navigate. And I think we all have certain guideposts and navigational tools that we use, but it is a very personal thing at the end of the day. But uh, that yeah. leads me to my final sort of questions. And I have a feeling, I think I might know how you'll answer this, but I'm wondering when all is said and done, what is that at the heart of your fiction writing? What's at the heart of it? I think it's what I was saying earlier on, which is the heart of, I want to write books that reflect women's stories and I want women to feel seen and understood by them. I also want them to be entertained, right? No question. Of course I do. I want them to also be transported and and to feel them deeply. But the stories I want to tell are about those grey areas of our lives. So in I Give My Marriage a Year, a lot of people wanted to know what the inspiration for that was, of course. And is this your relationship or is this your friend's relationship? Or, and they also wanted to be, she's a baddie and he's a goodie or he's a goodie and she's a baddie or we pick all those sides. And as I say, the thing that I find most fascinating is what lies in the middle of all that. Mm. So I love writing about relationships. I love writing about the complexities of 
all of us the like the gap between likability and mm. credibility and all those things like I find all of that fascinating and I want to explore that more and more in as many different ways as I can mm. especially as we live in a culture that is just so keen at the moment to make everything black and white you're either one or the other and that's why stories like yours are so refreshing and i want to thank you for your generosity and your time with the rights for women podcast today i know that a lot of people are going to want to rush out and buy your book and find you if they haven't already read the book or found you online but if they haven't where is the best place to find you on the socials Probably on Instagram is the place I am most active, where I am called Wayne Wright Holly, much to the amusement of all my generations that peers at work who are like, that's ridiculous, why aren't you just called Holly Wainwright? And I'm like, I don't know, I probably couldn't get Holly Wainwright at the time. Anyway, right, Holly. Uh, obviously, I write at Mamma Mia. Obviously, I'm on podcast Mamma Mia Out Loud, where we talk about things that women are talking about. And the couple upstairs is in stores now. Lovely. Thank you so much, Holly. And again, congratulations. Oh, thank you, Cassie. This has been such an interesting conversation. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at w4wpodcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women. Find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Have a great week and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. <laughs>